Testament reading is taken from the first book of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now the boy sang to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. My son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. The word of the Lord. Our psalm today is Psalm 139, reading responsively, verses 1 through 18. Our New Testament reading is from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins 
against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. The season of Epiphany. Oops. Before I start, I better get my... We are. We're in the season of Epiphany. And I absolutely love this season. Now, the truth is, I have am growing to just genuinely love the more and more I sit with and walk in this Anglican way every church season. It's just so powerful. But this season has always, really, really from the very beginning, has, has captured my attention. It's a season about seeing, <laughs> which I am helped by with these glasses. It's a season about light. It's a season about revelation, about comprehending all these kinds of things. It's a season of wonder and amazement. And I love that. But I've been greatly helped this particular year by Fleming Rutledge and her very small book on Epiphany, to be reminded that Epiphany above and beyond all things is chiefly about glory, glory, the glory of God. She says it this way, the season of Epiphany offers an opportunity to focus for several weeks on the glory of Christ as the second person of the Trinity in all his intrinsic, immutable, inestimable glory, which can never pass away. With regard to the glory of God in Jesus Christ, all subjectivity is eliminated. The glory of God is not earned, it's not negotiable. It's inherent. It's unchangeable. The glory for us, glory, glory can have lots of different meanings. And one of the things that we, we talk about, uh, you know, no guts, no glory, grabbing the glory, going for the glory, shooting for, aiming for the glory. But right here, we, we're, we are helped to just be reminded, the glory of God's not earned. It is simply there. Whether we perceive it or not, it remains. And it's a... It's a good reminder for us. We have lots of meanings. We have lots of understandings of glory. It can mean luminous. It can mean splendor. It can mean majestic. It can mean the Wilmore Rainbow. Did you all see that on Friday? The Wilmore Rainbow. It was not just in Wilmore. I saw a friend who posted a similar rainbow in Cincinnati at that same... I don't know what was going on, but man, that's cool. Really cool, and God just demonstrating the double rainbow, actually, that was, that was there. This is courtesy of Dan Lewis and his fine photography. But the, there, there's even a greater meaning of glory than, than that, although that radiance and that splendor is, is included. In, in the Greek, glory communicates this sense of, of reputation, of fame. But really, it has to do with honor, the honor that we give someone or something. In the Hebrew, the, the, the Hebrew word really communicates that sense of weight, of substance, of worth. 
weight and the substance and the worth of the glory of God. Our collect for, uh, for today, as well as for next Sunday, emphasize glory. I wonder if you caught that this morning. I, I'm seeing glory pop up everywhere, by the way. It's in our liturgy constantly. <laughs> that we as God's people would ourselves shine with the radiance of Jesus' glory. Next week, the collect will, will call us and, and will pray that the whole world may perceive the glory of the marvelous works of God in Jesus Christ. Epiphany is a short season. It's even shorter this year than, than normal. It is, I think it's probably one of the shortest seasons. It just seems to be the way things are going this year in our church year. But just last week, it starts with, uh, with a star, this glorious star that guides the Magi to the Christ child. Last Sunday, we, we see the, the baptism of Jesus. Emily Mahoney did such a beautiful job of speaking on the baptism of Jesus and the revelation there of the Godhead right there in that moment, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all on display. Epiphany ends with the Mount of Transfiguration. Just a glorious moment where, where Jesus is, is transfigured. These are cosmic and, and otherworldly displays of God's glory that, that, that Epiphany begins with and ends with, and in between we'll encounter Jesus' power over all other powers as he faces down the powers of evil, delivering people from sin and from demonic oppression even. And we'll be reminded of Jesus' worldwide, world-transforming, mission in this season. It's a glorious season. But for today, and for next Sunday especially, there's another expression of Jesus' glory that's on display, and it's found in the calling, the glorious calling of Jesus' first disciples. And I wonder if we as followers of Jesus, might somehow appropriately find ourselves even um, as we see these first disciples being called. It's a glory that's no less radiant or marvelous than those cosmic expressions. But it's a glory that's revealed in very human and very personal ways. Like the the way of finding and of being found. In John, we, we, we see this repetitive device. John loves playing with words. And we see this repetitive device with the word found. It begins with Jesus who finds Philip and invites Philip to follow me. Then Philip finds Nathaniel and says, We found him. We found the Messiah which immediately causes me and perhaps you to say, wait a minute, Philip, <laughs> who found who here, really? Who was doing the finding? Interestingly, in the verses just before this, there's also the calling of, uh, of what, what we see as Andrew and Peter and other disciples in verses 35 through 42. And there's a similar pattern 
where John the Baptist first points Andrew in the direction, and Andrew and another disciple, to Jesus, and then Jesus welcomes Andrew. And after that, Andrew finds his brother Simon and says, we found the Messiah. But even there, we see more of a two-way process going on as John's doing a lot of the directing here. Simply making this point, the first disciples thought they were looking for the Messiah. And what they discover is the Messiah, Jesus, was looking for them. Long before Jesus was on their minds, they were on his mind. It's that same kind of reality we find in the in 1 Samuel this morning, isn't it? It's God who's pursuing Samuel much more than Samuel pursuing God. It leads to a second way that glory is revealed, very similar, seeing and being seen. There's a, another repetitive word device, come and see. In this passage, uh, there's that early, earlier passage that I referred to as Andrew encounters Jesus. Jesus invites him to come and see, see who I am, see, see what, hang out with me for a day, get to know him, get to see what he's all about. And then a few verses later, it's repeated. As Philip reaches out to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel makes his famous remark, can anything good come from Nazareth? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Philip's response is, come and see. Come and see. Nathaniel does, and immediately Jesus remarks to Nathaniel about Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel is stunned. How do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, I saw you. I saw you. And similarly, if we go to the passage just before this, as Andrew brings Simon to Jesus, Jesus looks at Simon and indicates he already knows him. Even going so far as to change his name from Simon Peter, it's this, it's this kind of knowing, this kind of seeing, this kind of being known, this kind of being seen that we have in Psalm 139. I'm sure it's many, for many of us, a favorite song in that whole great glorious book of Psalms. God, you have searched me. You, you know me. There's nowhere I can go to hide from you, the psalmist writes. But here's the interesting thing. Your knowledge of me is not fueled by control. It's not fueled by fear. It's not this big eye in the sky, you know, like Soren from Lord of the Rings that's just looking around to see where all where everybody is and 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 let's keep an eye on everybody. We got to we got to manage them, got to control them. Got to oh these people, these people, got to keep an eye on all of them. Look what they're doing. It's not him at all. What we discover is this glorious sight 
and knowledge is fueled rather by perfect holy love. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist says. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It, it overwhelms me. How precious are your thoughts to me, O oh God. I'm loved. I'm seen. I'm known. I'm wanted. I was thinking about this earlier this week. I have been consciously following Jesus <laughs> for nearly 50 years. <clears throat> I gave my life to Jesus. I'd made a decision for Jesus at the, at the age of eight. Nearly 50 years. Not quite 50, but nearly 50 years. And that occurred to me, that's a long time. Half a century. But that's not the point. The point is this. <clears throat> In all those years, this particular aspect of being known, of being seen, of knowing myself, of Knowing who I am has been an up and down, back and forth fact for me all of these years. And as I take, take it seriously, self-reflection and self-knowledge and, and, and knowing that God sees, he sees all of me. I am helped regularly to return again to the simple Psalm 139 truth. At first, first, understanding, I am deeply seen, deeply known, and loved by God. That's first. Yes, there is the other. Knowing and facing the depths of my sinfulness. Knowing and facing the depths of my brokenness, my smallness, my limitedness, my inadequacy, my, oh, I could... Tell you all of I could. I'm not going to today, but the depths of, of my brokenness, my fear, my anxieties. But also knowing, right, even with that, not just having those two kind of face off with one another, but also knowing that myself to be in the process of being redeemed, of being restored by God. It's really all three of these, all at the same time, and always first. I am deeply known and deeply loved by God. It's a deep, agonizing, liberating, transformative process of growth in discipleship. We actually get a, a small glimpse of it, don't we, in that first encounter, chapter 1 of John, where, uh, where, it's, where it's with Nathaniel. Could you, put yourself in Nathaniel's skin for just a few moments. <laughs> Here he has just, just made the wisecrack of the century here, hasn't he? The cynic, the wisecrack. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And what are the first words from Jesus that he hears? Not rebuke or correction. Now look here. Look here. Here's a true Israelite without any guile. The first words off Jesus' lips. First, just see that Jesus ignores Nathaniel's jab and focuses on the greater good, sees the good. Secondly, what Jesus is doing here is he's, a make, he's making an allusion to Jacob all the way back, the deceiver, Jacob the deceiver, 
all the way back in, in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob, who is anything but guileless, right? <laughs> the liar, the deceiver. And yet, as he wrestles with God, he's renamed. He's Israel. Jacob becomes Israel in that moment. Now here's Nathaniel being known and named Israel, a true Israelite. It's most certainly a revelation, an epiphany about Jesus, about his insight, about his knowledge, about his glorious capacity to see and to know. It's also an epiphany that Nathaniel has about himself. Mary Pugh, in her commentary, says it this way, Jesus called the good out of Nathaniel so powerfully that Nathaniel was able to confess, you are the Son of God. You see, Jesus knows the true Nathaniel even better than Nathaniel does. It's this kind of knowledge, this kind of knowing, being known, this kind of loving, being loved, believing and being believed in, yes. This kind of trusting relationship, surrender relationship that grounds us and orients us and, and really gives us a fuller, richer appreciation for those three little words, come and see, come and see. Nathaniel is blown away. He makes the penultimate uh, declaration about Jesus in John chapter 1. You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And Jesus' response to Nathaniel is essentially, Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet, man. <laughs> and then he makes the ultimate declaration about himself. In this cryptic line here, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is going on here? But it's in this cryptic language that Jesus is once again taking Nathaniel back to the story of Jacob in Genesis, this time to Genesis 28, where Jacob dreams of a ladder between heaven and earth which God's angels go up and down on. The ladder, of course, is, is the link, right? It's the connection place between heaven and earth. That's what the ladder is, the significance of the ladder. It's where heaven and earth come together. Jesus, is in as many words, is saying, that's who you're dealing with, Nathaniel. I'm the place where heaven and earth are coming together. Craig Keener, in his commentary on Matthew, says it that blatantly. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. That's the declaration. It's the, it's the ultimate declaration of John chapter 1. Jesus, and amongst all these other things, he's Jacob's ladder. Marion May Thompson says it this way. If the disciples expected to look up in order to see the open heavens, John invites them to look at what is right in front of them. To look at the Word made flesh, to look at the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and there to see the revelation of 
glory of God. It is awesome. It's cosmic in its own way, right? John's gospel doesn't have a Mount of Transfiguration scene, but maybe this could serve as that. Actually, most commentators say all of John's gospel is just one big transfiguration scene where Jesus' glory is constantly on display. But the glory of Jesus that grabs my heart, and I wish to offer you as I conclude, is this. It's found in Jesus' finding, in his seeing and knowing, in his calling out and identifying and naming. Followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, might you be found, might you be known in just the same way? I wonder, I wonder if God does have a special name for each one of us. The book of Revelation seems to indicate he may just very well. I wonder what his special name is for me. I look forward to finding out. In finding Jesus, we discover it is we who are found. In seeing and knowing Jesus, we learn it's we who are perfectly seen, known, loved. And as we entrust ourselves to Jesus, finding, seeing, and knowing us, we not only grow in knowing Jesus, we grow in knowing, knowing about life, knowing about the world, even by God's grace, knowing about ourselves. And it is glorious. Amen. Amen. Amen.